Welcome to Creating Dangerously. Our name is taken from the Albert Camus 1957 lecture, Create Dangerously, where he said, To create today is to create dangerously. Any publication is an act, and that act exposes one to the passion of an age that forgives nothing. In Creating Dangerously, we look back at those who have created dangerously to those who continue to do so today in an age that still forgives nothing. I'm your host, Skip Shea, so let's create dangerously. No one's allowed to smoke or tell a dirty joke, and whistling is forbidden. We're not allowed to tell a dirty joke. If chewing gum is chewed, the chewer is pursued, and in the who's cow hidden. If we choose to chew, we'll be pursued. If any form of pleasure is exhibited, report to me and it will be prohibited. I'll put my foot down, so shall it be. This is the land of the free. That was These Are the Laws of My Administration from the 1933 classic political satire Duck Soup with Groucho Marx singing as Rufus T. Firefly, the, the leader of Fredonia. And with some political satire, it still holds true today. And speaking of political satire today, we're going to bring in uh, Oscar winner Adam McKay right now to continue our discussion on satire. And um, Adam, you, you started uh, the big short with a quote by Mark Twain. So I'm going to start this with another one where uh, Mark Twain said, against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. Is uh, his quote on the power of satire, and you you started a little, bit, a little bit with the other guys, uh, but then with the big short vice and don't look up, you you dove in head first with satire. Can can you explain why you decided to go that route? Yeah, it was, a, it was sort of two reasons. Number one, I think that Mark Twain quote is spot on. Uh, laughter is the greatest truth detector. The example I always give is years ago, might have been like 12, 12 years ago, maybe 14 years ago, Fox News tried to do a late night comedy show. Um, but it, it just couldn't work because the jokes were about how billionaires shouldn't be taxed right. <laughs> how people don't need universal health care and it's like when you heard them try and make jokes like that you realize how ridiculous it is so they canceled it really quickly i think it ran like three episodes and it's a great example of people just can't laugh at things that you know don't have truth in them um, and then the second reason I started playing around with what I was doing and sort of breaking traditional story forms was I just became clearer and clearer that we're living in very unusual times, that great change is barreling through civilization. And, uh, you know, if I had said that five years ago, people would have been like, calm down, but it's interesting how I think most people would go, yeah, that's true now. So we really try to uh, play with our storytelling structure, surprise audiences, blend 
silly comedy with dark tragedy because I really believe that's sort of how being alive feels right now, both absurd and scary as hell. So, yeah, it was, it was sort of fairly consciously those two uh, choices were what led to what, you know, we're sort of doing now, whether it's with the feature films like Don't Look Up and Big Short and Vice or with the shows uh, I directed pilots for and helped set up like Succession and uh, documentaries were producing features like The Menu, um, all sort of filter through that kind of premise that, man, do we need to laugh right now? And we need to laugh about things that are connected to the real world. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. I, I think I, I, I think we need more of it. Um, I, I mean, I go, I go back for myself to like the Marx Brothers' Duck Soup, um, and 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 their absurd piece where if if you miss it, I mean, but you cut every time Groucho during the war, you cut back to Groucho. He's wearing a uniform from a different war. To just show that this continues, and I and I think you did the same thing in Vice, with with the Shakespeare scene, um, that this is a, a never ending story of, of of people wanting power. Um, but yeah, the both... only thing I messed up on with the Shakespeare scene is that's actually original what they're saying, and everyone kind of assumed it was pulled from some play. And I was like, shoot, I should have made it clear that it's actually what's in the movie is about the Cheneys. I should have had some contemporary references in there. But otherwise, yes, that was kind of the idea. It's a tale as old as the hills. So, yeah. Do, do, do you think, though, that that, um, that doing this uh, in, in, in the climate today is, is a dangerous thing? And, I'll, you know, I'll go back to, you know, 2015 in Paris with the Charlie Hebdo headquarters with, with the shooting and, you know, someone attacking, you know, going to Nancy Pelosi's house and attacking her husband and, and representative Conley's office yesterday, I think it was, was somebody went in with a baseball bat. Um, it, it seems that if, if you're not saying what somebody wants to hear, that there is, there is a, a violent reaction to it now. Well, I the experience I've had has been very different because I think what drives a lot of this anger, frustration, and sometimes outright violence, in fact, more and more outright violence, is that people just can't stand to live in a fiction. I mean, they've actually done studies on this that show that Animals, you know, need a routine based in reality and that when the routine becomes random to the animal that they suffer fast breakdown. And so with screening our movies for audiences all around the country, it's really remarkable how much they embrace them because they can tell we're trying not to bullshit them. Uh, pardon my language, oh, but that's it's, right. <laughs> it's such a common term. I don't even think of it as cursing anymore. I'll say BS. Uh, so we try very hard not to BS them and they really appreciate it. And what I've noticed is that it crosses 
this fictional red blue divide that we have in our country, which is really just a lot of people having responses to a ceaseless economic attack, ceaseless attack on our environment, on our way of life, on our safety. And you just see people respond differently. And the powers that be were like, oh, well, let's use the trauma we're putting on people also as a means to divide them. So we've had some remarkable screenings where it's so heartening, where you see very uh, uh, entrenched Republicans, uh, corporatist Dems, left wingers, uh, actual progressive left wingers, all like rally around a screening we've just had. Now, don't get me wrong, you're never going to make a movie that has 100% of the people on board. It's just impossible in today's world and probably ever. But uh, I have noticed that that it's really interesting how these movies play just because we're not towing the prevailing uh, fiction uh, party line. And uh, you can really feel people relax and feel less pressured and laugh and sort of agree. I mean, we, we got some good reviews on Don't Look Up from very Republican sides of the fence, like very conservative sides of the fence. And then we got some really good reviews from left wing sides of the fence and some really angry reviews from you know, corporatist, centrist, dem. So you just kind of never know. But I, the central premise is at, at the root of everything, people really do want to connect. They really do want the world to be better. Maybe not Wall Street. That might be the one exception to what I just said. Yeah. But um, uh, for the most part, people really do want things to work. They want to connect. They want to collaborate. They want to like be working towards a common goal. And we've just been robbed of that for the past 20, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Probably starts with, with Reagan um, and, and that era. Um, yeah. But, yeah. But- which also started in the seventies with the chamber of commerce moving to Washington, DC, the Coors family, the Coke family, Richard Mellonscape, all the big money sort of faces realizing if they didn't buy Washington, D.C., they were going to keep losing to people like Ralph Nader. And and people like to deify Jimmy Carter, but he played into some of that as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's a good guy, but he was kind of the first neoliberal corporatist dem. Uh, but you, I think you come at this so from from a safe distance. You're, you're a democratic socialist. You're you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, and and the the you know and the, the fact that with Bernie is the fact that I really believe that he he literally did speak to everyone, to to the point where where they had to figure out a way to get rid of him. Um, but you you don't come from, you're not wearing a blue or a red shirt. I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, so it's 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 easier to listen to you say these things than I think than other people. <laughs> it's kind of true. I mean, my operating theory is that the red versus blue fight is professional wrestling. It's a charade. <laughs> and if you really look at the actions of both parties, 
it's very hard to distinguish them. Now, don't get me wrong. There are extreme right-wing elements that do want to go towards authoritarianism, that do want violent uprising. I would just say it's much smaller than the corporate uh, corporatist media would have you believe that it's it's really a very, very small percentage of of the population. I mean, the, the January 6th was terrifying. But one thing no one ever talks about is there weren't that many people there for that being the big event of QAnon in the extreme right. The turnout wasn't great. If it had been bigger, it could have turned into a full revolution. But I, I really just believe it's a fiction. It's it's designed for both parties to accept anything they do because you're afraid of what the other party is going to do. And it's it's a circular firing squad, and it's worked fantastically well uh, to enable corruption from big capital. But uh, yeah, I can't stand the Democratic Party and I can't stand the RNC, but um, I do believe in the people uh, behind it. I think the people are much smarter than they're given credit for. They're much more aware. Their hopelessness is, is visceral when it comes to government. And I think slowly people are going to really start to figure out uh, the the true power they have. I, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I mean, part, part of my notes here, and I'm laughing as I say this, is like, how, how did you not become a nihilist as you're, as you're doing all this? But you, have, uh, you have a lot of hope here. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just look at history. Um, you know, we're improving. I mean, people forget we only got rid of monarchies like what, 300 years ago, roughly yeah. French Revolution. You know, basically, we started waking up to the fact that the king is actually not chosen by God about 300 years ago, maybe 350. That's not long. So this whole idea of democracy, you know, we're still getting outflanked by you know manipulative media by big money but we are learning and growing and ultimately i do think it's going to improve the only thing that scares the heck out of me is the climate breakdown because that is happening very fast and and these money the interests will not allow change to happen i mean the fact that carbon emissions still went up last year yeah. is really should alarm all of us so but once again the good news there is if we can just break this stranglehold of big money we do have the science to deal with climate breakdown we really have remarkable science it's just big money government big money industry big money media won't uh won't allow any sort of transformative action yeah, well, I think in and uh, don't look up. I mean, that was that was the original intent was to to show uh, the, the the you know the true existential threat of 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 climate change. But then COVID happened, and it became a lot of people viewed it as 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 a, a metaphor for the pandemic as opposed to climate change. And um, I mean, I remember having conversations with people, and I was kind of struck that they they didn't know. Um, they. How did you did you hear any of that, too, or? Yes. Yeah. So that was a really interesting thing because we were already making the movie 
It had already been written and then COVID hit and we had a discussion. Well, man, oh man, now the movie feels a lot like COVID. So we decided two things. We decided that's okay because the same broken institutions that couldn't handle COVID are the same broken institutions that are asleep at the wheel on climate breakdown. So we, we felt like it was fine that, that really the message we were saying was specifically about our corrupted institutions and media and culture. And then the second thing we decided was that in the press, we were going to, surrounding the movie, we were just going to nakedly say it. And that actually worked quite well. Yeah. They did like data research from Netflix that showed that large portions of the audience did get that it was climate and that even when they thought it was for COVID, that was okay too. I don't, I don't know if you've caught this, but you're in uh, uh, Massachusetts, but uh, Max Tegmark from MIT just did an interview where he said, don't look up plays as a perfect allegory for the threat that AI poses. Oh no! And oh yeah! Wow! And, and yeah, AI, you know, obviously is is uh, advancing way faster than yeah. once again our media is telling us. And uh, really, the the people behind it and the people that are aware of how AI works are very worried. So he did a whole interview where he said that actually I see Don't Look Up is playing for AI. And I kind of realized at that point that really what Don't Look Up is about, it's really about our broken institutions, our broken collective culture, uh, broken media leaders, industry. And, and I think that's fine. Yeah. Sometimes you make a movie and you kind of learn what it's really about even though you've made it once it's released it takes on a completely different life of its own yeah it's, as someone once said to me you know when you create a piece of art once you once you put it out there you no longer own it and, and i think that that is true so true yeah uh, um but so you you've you've since started a nonprofit, uh, yellow dot studios you want to mention that a little bit? Yeah, thank you. Um, it, it's uh, a nonprofit climate media disruption studio. I've got to think of a, a niftier way to say it than that. <laughs> that is very unwieldy. But essentially what it is, is we're making videos, memes, ads, documentaries, anything you can think of uh, to take the fight to the oil companies and the profitized media because for years they've been beating the crap out of us with misinformation delay on climate you know we could have solved uh or dealt with the climate crisis 40 50 years ago but the oil companies decided to lie about it and they still are and they still have a tremendous hold over our elected officials through lobbying and dirty money and our media through advertising dollars so yeah we started this uh studio to make materials to uh punch them back and uh it's been great it feels so good to have some way to fight 
back. So we're releasing videos, memes, uh, shorts, uh, information, uh, connecting with climate activists, organizations, scientists around the world, and just generating materials for them to use, for people to see. And uh, it's a blast. If anyone wants to check it out, we have a, a website where you can see our videos. You can sign up for our weekly media blast, disruptive media blast. We're calling it the weather above ground. And, uh, <laughs> Great. Uh, and uh, and obviously we're a non-for-profit, but we tell people like the billionaires aren't too crazy about us because we have to kind of deal with wealth inequality. So we're kind of going the Bernie road where if anyone wants to give five bucks, 10 bucks, 100 yep. bucks, whatever, you can do it on the website. And we're across all the social media platforms. If anyone wants to follow, check us out. Um, but yeah, it's been great. We're in week two. Uh, so we just started. Yeah, I saw a commercial for big money and I thought that was terrific. Um, I, I think that that's that's I, I, that, I mean, you've, you've mentioned it several times and I and I think that that's that's the key is is the big money. And I and I understand that's also what average height and average build is 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 tackling in its own metaphoric way. True. Yeah, we're we're hoping. I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, there's a, a giant uh, writers guild of America strike. Right. Um, so we were about to come out uh, your way to Boston and the surrounding areas and start filming this movie, but it's on hold right now, but we'll get to it um, at some point. But yeah, that whole movie, I mean, it's a comedy, it's kind of a thriller, and but it, at its root is showing the system uh, of uh, how big money takes over government and captures our country and other countries but it, it's it's a pretty unusual movie i don't want to give too much away but it's um it's definitely a comedy but it's also a thriller it's uh yeah it's an interesting one yeah well i'm i'm looking forward to that hopefully you'll you'll be shooting back in worcester again too i know you you shot some of of don't look up there uh you did indeed i hadn't been back to worcester oh my god gosh like in 25 years <laughs> it's so, a lot different now I, I didn't recognize it it was crazy i saw like an artisanal bread store yeah <laughs> like yep <laughs> i mean when i was there there was like liquor store maybe like black coffee at a diner and then some fast food you know fried food places and that was about it and I couldn't believe how different it looked. I actually, we went by my old house and uh, it, it seems like the town is really doing great, has really found a new gear. Yeah, it, it seems to have, um, although it's mostly, you know, you know pharmaceutical money but um but yeah but it, but it has, it's it's right. I've, I've lived in this area my entire life and uh and, and it it's it's changed dramatically. I mean, somebody once said to me, if you really wanted to make a gritty 70s New York movie, shoot it in Worcester. Uh, but you can't say that anymore. It it wow. it, it, it has a, a, a much better feel to it. But I, I want to jump back to to um I had I had to bring a Worcester piece up, but I, I wanted to Heck yeah, of course. Worcester's strong. Yeah, uh, um jump back to, to the corporate media because in it, and I think this is the, again the the importance of, of what you're doing. 
because it, it's at some point the the place where everybody got their their news was was you know on, on the comedy channels because you couldn't get it any place else where someone would tell you the truth and I'm you know referring mostly to John Stewart he he kicked it all off um because is fighting disinformation when there's that much money behind it with corporate media it, it's it's a huge challenge um I mean that's me you know when I was waffling on on nihilism um I'm like how do you how do you beat that you know it's, it's there's two things first off it's really fun to do because they're so full of it they're so exposed that it's actually not hard to kind of flip them and make them look ridiculous <laughs> um and and that exposure the fact that they have to live in a world of bs and fictions and double speak and attitude over reality um means that they they really will always lose too ultimately they can kind of overwhelm you with volume and uh, this sort of cultural consensus of false cultural consensus that our corporate media has created around itself uh, sort of the cultural gatekeepers the pundits the op-ed i mean they're all sort of part of that same uh financial or, or that same uh, cultural economy so you know you kind of learn you you know sometimes early on i was surprised by how thick it was and I was surprised by how prevalent it was. And you just kind of keep learning. It's also getting much worse. It was way different 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it, it's it's really, um, someone said that America is the most, a friend of mine was saying a, a, in a piece he wrote that America is the most propagandized country in the world. And I, I, I think most isn't, uh, really the the perfect word i think it's that we have the best propaganda i mean our propaganda is it's so good that it's almost delicious to be lied to in america i mean it, it's everyone knows fast food restaurants are terrible but man their commercials the colors on the sign the promise they give you is almost a meal unto itself and that's kind of what america's just done across the board but the second you touch it or push it or tip it, there's really nothing there. Um, and I think that will continue to build momentum. We'll never do it by ourselves with Yellow Dot, but we definitely want to be a part of it. Yeah, do I, I no, I think I think you I think you're a big part of it. I mean, I, like I, you know, again, and I'll I'm gonna say you, maybe Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, John Stewart. Uh, are the ones who are sh who are shining the light right now, um, and through satire, because I, I it seems that that comedy and, and to a, 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 a lesser extent horror uh, makes it safe for people to talk about things. I mean, if, if you look at like Jordan Peele's work, um, it 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 shows you something that's happening a, a step removed where I think people are a little bit more comfortable to, and maybe a little bit more open to discussing it afterwards, uh, uh, what, what is actually happening. It's true. I mean, you know, we have a podcast called um, Death on the Lot uh, that's, that's uh, coming out. 
and it's uh, it, it's a sequel to another podcast we call we did called Death at the Wing. And basically, what we do is we look at a spate of deaths that occur around a certain industry or or society, and we question like, why did this happen in this small time frame? So the new season is about. Um, there was a period in Hollywood in the forties, uh, fifties, into the early sixties, where a lot of stars and directors and producers died uh, through various reasons. And one of the people we look at, uh, not because he passed away at an early age, but we look at uh, Rod Serling, who ran into exactly as as you probably know, Skip ran into exactly the problem we're talking about. He wanted to do um, a Playhouse '90s style uh, TV show about the lynching of Emmett Till, and the advertisers stepped in. And it's really one of the first times that the advertisers did this because TV was still very new in the 1950s, and they said you can't do that. We won't advertise our products if you go at something like lynching and racism. And Rod Serling wrote an op-ed, I think it was in the New York Times, saying, hey, everyone, this is a problem. Like, this is censorship through, you know, capitalism, through profitization. And, you know, of course, people talked about it for half a day and then everyone forgot about it. So he realized if he was going to do these stories, he had to turn them into allegories and he created the Twilight Zone. So we talk about this in this new podcast we have coming out. And the question we have is like, wow, that's incredible that Rod Serling did that. It's very clever. It's very resourceful. But ultimately, is it still a defeat? Is it still a capitulation? Because you, you know, there's a lot of people when you speak in the allegory, you leave behind. There's a lot of people that, yeah. you know, explicit language has a real power to it. I mean, you look at a play like Waiting for Lefty, you look at a movie like A Face in the Crowd. They're very explicit stories that were saying what they are. Or even recently, the Iranian um, filmmaker uh, Jafar Panahi his new movie, No Bears, oh my God, it's so good. And he toys with explicit, you know, talking about what you're talking about. And then he kind of mixes some allegory in. And so that's something with Yellow Dot and a lot of what I've been doing lately where I I take great pleasure. It feels like a release to just say things nakedly um, because it's been so long since we've all collectively done it that wow that that's that's true it, it, well and and hope are we collectively doing it i guess is the question i mean I, that's that's the problem i think uh, or or you know i'm again i'm hoping yeah, I'm, I'm i'm turning to you for hope i guess well um, I really think we can each do it. This is another thing that sort of robbed us of a lot of our power. You talk to anyone who's in marketing or advertising, big, the high level marketing and advertising, you know what? They all get paid billions. And I think it's a $60 billion industry a year in the U.S. I might even be higher now, advertising. They're all, all they're trying to do is replicate word of mouth. 
that word of mouth is still the most powerful force for selling a product, a movie, a political movement. So I tell people when they're like, God, the climate is so overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. What do I do? And I was like, honestly, just talk about it, like bring it up. And, and it's really shocking how much momentum it can cause and how it can take people to the next step. So the thing that I constantly say is like, look, there's three stories that we're living in right now. There's three realities that are kind of affecting everything. Number one, you know, big global money, swamped governments all around the world, swamped media, swamped cultures all around the world. And number two, the climate is breaking down at a freakish fast pace because of fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions that were not cutting at fast enough pace. And then number three, most people are traumatized because they're under constant predatory economic attack. Their environment has gotten more violent, less stable. Basically, those three realities. And if you look at everything through those three realities, it works pretty well. I mean, there's no way to look at everything in a way that's the same and it works all the time, but those three realities. And so I just try and like talk about those three realities whenever I talk to friends, family, friends I haven't seen in a while. And I don't bring it up in a way that's a bummer. It's just that like, if we're going to live in reality, we have to talk, you know, we have to communicate in that reality that we're living in. And so much of the way we're used to talking from the past 40, 50 years is just a fictional world that no longer exists. So, yeah, the thing I tell everyone, like, what can I do about climate? What can I do about all this, you know, grotesque money that's corrupted everything? And I'm just like, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Bring it up casually, make a joke about it, reference it, act like everyone knows. Um, And and it's really, really incredible the difference it can make. Okay, well, I think I think that's the perfect note to end on (laughs) to get everyone (laughs) out there to talk about this. Um, uh, Because I I, I, that's what we're we're hopefully we're doing here as well. because it, it's these are daunting times, but but uh, I, I you know I, I just revisited all of your movies again, but you know before this, and I, and I I even like even the uh, at the end of Vice when when unapologetically Dick Cheney you know tells us what he thinks, uh, I still walked away with a sense of hope, um, because it, it was exposed. Uh, you know, you know, you still have fresh in your mind the people, the names of the people that he had tortured. Um, he didn't do anything to really protect us. He did things to line his pockets, and 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 just walking away and walking away from that afterwards. Again, I, I was struck about at how I felt positive about it. That that here it is. Here the truth is just right there. You know, for all of us to see. Uh, and so I thank you for it, that. It, is you want to hear the best story skip so i you know we made that movie and it was very divisive some people loved it some people hated it whatever and later uh christian bale told me a story he said he had a friend who was at like a big media party in washington dc and dick cheney was there 
And the friend went up to Dick Cheney and said, oh, hello, Mr. Vice President. I'm actually friends with Christian Bale. Is there anything you want me to tell him? And Cheney looked at him and he said, you tell that guy he's a dick. And (laughs) the friend of Bale's thought he was kidding because he was saying dick, like his name. And thought he was kind of making up. And then the, the, the friend laughed. And Dick Cheney looked at him like stone cold and said, I'm not kidding. You tell him that. <laughs> and so Bale told me that story. And I was like, we got to him. Yep. <laughs> we got to him. Because the real truth of Cheney is everyone will tell you. We did tons of research. He loves his daughters. He loves his family. He's a good dad. He cooks for the family. Now, don't get me wrong. He does monstrous things outside of it, but that's the center of him. And that's the justification. And the real truth is because of his power hungry, cold nature, he broke apart his family. His daughters stopped talking to each other and he greatly injured one of his daughters. And that's the personal tragedy of Dick Cheney that we discovered. And uh, so I heard that story. So you're right. Like, you know, it is a divisive movie, blah, blah, blah. But when I heard that, I was like, every bit of it was worth it. No one gets away. Everyone has to live with themselves inside. And he knows it's true. Yeah. No, right. Yeah, yeah right. The truth. Well, I'm glad to know, right, that it, the truth got to him. Um, outside of, you know, his exterior, his his wealth. As it seemed, I mean, it seems that's what all of this is done for. It's funny when you, when you, and I, and I know, I know I said I'd wrap up when you, you said other countries, uh, it's the same in other countries. We, we, my wife and I just bought a tiny little place in Italy, um, like cheaper than a car. Ooh. It's cheaper than a car Ooh. because we, we, this was after the, Supreme, where? We're, we're in Scandiglia, which is about 35 miles Northeast of Rome. Um, it's olive oil country. Oh, it's, nice. it's, it's nice. gorgeous. But you know, as soon as we get there, right? They 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 elect prime minister from Mussolini's old party. We're like, what the hell? <laughs> like, we're, we're trying to get away from here, and it's worse in Italy. Um, but the Italians seem to roll with it a lot better. I got it. Last thing, it's fun to talk to you. But last thing is so for any of your listeners who don't know, Skip had a role in uh, the <laughs> other guy played the bus driver. And do you know where I wrote the other guys? I wrote it in Siena, uh, Italy. Because uh, we had the movie all lined up at Sony and the entire economy crashed. It was the housing market crash. And uh, all of a sudden, Sony got gun shy and started hitting me with tons of notes. Well, we had a vacation planned in Italy. And if this movie was going to happen, I had to do this giant rewrite on our vacation. So I stayed in a hotel room in Siena, rewrote all night, would get three hours of sleep, meet my family, and then we go do our vacation. And then I repeated that process about two dozen times. Good news was we got it there, got greenlit, we made the movie. But yeah, yeah, Siena is a great town, too, if you get a chance. Oh, yeah. Were you there for the horse race? No, unfortunately, everyone talked about it, but 
It's um, insane. But no, it's cool. For people who don't know, it's a, a Middle Ages city that is still functional. It's not yes. like all tourist stuff. Like it's a functioning, living, breathing middle, uh, you know, ninth century um, uh, CE uh, city. Uh, it's really, really cool. Yeah, but one of the churches has the actual head of St. Catherine uh, on display. <laughs> so, right. Right. Uh, it's kind of a creepy place, too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Adam, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, I know we, we, we uh, you overstayed, and I really appreciate that. Um, and and I, I look forward to your future work. And, and, uh, and I, we absolutely look forward to you coming back and shooting in Massachusetts. Yeah, well, hopefully I'll, uh, we'll see each other when I'm there. You have to come by set. And what an enjoyable conversation, Skip. Thank you so this much for having me. Thanks. All right. Bye. Be well. May I have your attention, please? I think you all remember the bargain we made about staying all night. No such luck, Vincent. It sounds like way too much fun, which has been outlawed by Rufus T. Firefly. Hail, hail, Fredonia, indeed. Thanks for joining us today, folks. Our opening and closing themes are by Shane Ivers. Creating Dangerously, a monthly podcast, is a production of the Shauna E. Shea Memorial Foundation, Inc., a 501c3 charitable organization. All views and opinions expressed in Creating Dangerously are not necessarily those of the Shauna Foundation and its affiliates. Not that we have any. They are only the opinions of the hosts and the guests. See you next month, and remember, keep creating dangerously.